0: My name is Charlotte Horton. It's very difficult to describe what I am because I do get involved in doing so many things from making wine, making olive oil, getting involved with local people who are doing these things and going mushroom hunting and foraging.
1: I was quite fascinated about how you came to find this place because it is so remote. It's not like you pass it on a road. You have to really go out of your way to get here. So what led you here?
0: Well, the stories starts a long time ago at the end of the 1960s when my step-grandmother, who was writing a series of travel books about rather obscure bits of the Mediterranean and places that people didn't normally go to on travels, she was waiting at a bus stop on the island of Crete um, whilst she was writing one of these books, sitting waiting for the bus. She met this Italian woman and they started chatting and My step-grandmother said that she was looking for a house. She was writing a travel book. Really, she wanted to to, um, find somewhere to go and retire with her husband. And the Italian woman said, oh, don't move to Greece. There's this really interesting area of Tuscany that's completely undiscovered between Pisa and Rome that nobody knows about. It's got fantastic coastline and it's really unspoiled. Grandmother didn't really take that much notice of this until she got a t- telegram two months after meeting this woman saying, I've put a deposit on a house in southern Tuscany for you. And so being, she being an adventurous woman, she just said to her husband, let's go and look at it. They absolutely loved it. So that was the area known as the Maremma. But it was an area that was known for its bandits, the fact that it was in- malarial, So it's quite a wild area, and if you actually look at the map of Italy, you'll see that there's no motorway between Pisa and Civitavecchia, nearly all the Mm. way down to Rome. Mm. There's a big gap, and that's the wonderful Maremma, and it remained very, very unspoiled, and still is pretty unspoiled. That was the southern Tuscany that I first got to know when I was young, Mm. because we spent all our holidays there. Yeah. Then when our grandmother died we inherited the house and the family decided to buy something a little bit bigger in in the 80s mid 80s everything was for sale for nothing then you could really pick up some extraordinary properties for nothing I mean we traveled around and we saw where Villa Banffy is was for sale for nothing it was a a wreck Mm. but we found a ruined castle near a place called Scansana, which was a little bit closer to the coast. Being rather foolish and eccentric, we bought it. (laughs) And I couldn't believe my luck. I just, at the age of 20, I think I was probably 28, I just thought, I'm going to go and live there. This is my dream. And I could.
1: Which is pretty brave when we think about today, that's not at that age, but back then, to go to a country where... You you said you had a bit of an understanding of the language, correct? But were you fluent at
0: that point? No, but I knew it. I knew Italy. I'd been going since I was about seven. So I kind of was familiar with it. I just had a different imagination. I just had different visions of what you could do. I went and lived when we were restoring the actual main part of the castle in a a house that was ruined above the cows with no electricity Mm. and no water. And I loved it. I was happy as anything. It was, when I think about it, it was quite mad.
1: I think it's courageous,
0: very courageous. And then I immersed myself. I came from punk London. I was a bit of an anarchist punk um, because that's what London was. It was so so small and so poor, Mm. London, that everyone could be creative because there was no money. So they just sort of went around doing things and using spaces that were empty and doing obviously squat squatting and yeah. all of these and things like parties so I, yeah, and yeah in these parties and also my friends would just go oh there's a, there's an empty space in in um bond street let's do a show there you know so it, all sorts of things interesting things were happening because nobody had any money they didn't mm. expect any money from mm. what they were doing i think i i went to rural italy and suddenly discovered these people who are very independent, very anarchic, Mm. very independent because they provided all their own foodstuffs. I'd I'd never met people who who knew how to do that much. Mm. I I got completely sucked in because I thought, this is rural punk. (laughs) And I felt terribly at home. There were all sorts of dramas and adventures. Of course, it wasn't all um, a a bundle of laughs, I can Mm. say. I, at one stage, said, Next thing on my list is to go and find out about wine. And mm. as a family, we talked about planting a vineyard and we, we wanted to plant a vineyard. I just asked some of my local guy friends, and I said, Who's, who can I go and learn how to make wine off? They said, oh, go up to those brothers up there who are always drunk. <laughs> and they're two old guys. I said, can I come and learn how to make wine with you? And they went, of course you can. You know, we're harvesting next week. I bet they were so chuffed to have this... <laughs> Lovely yeah, young I was, woman. I, I was a younger, not too bad looking. So. Well, first time I made wine with them, I was just like, I love this. It was like a coup de foudre. You know when you have those yeah. those moments where you're just suddenly like like uh, 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 they're epiphanies, and you just go, I suddenly just that's what I want to do, and it was natural. All of my my winemaking style really has been informed by that. So when we were talking about natural wine, and, and I, no, I make wine. That's how people made wine. Mm. They never made wine in the Californian way with all these chemicals, all these sprays. They never did it.
1: Mm. It's so nice to know as well that that was your starting point because it's quite common for a lot of wine producers to sort of do it modern way which is the industrial way and then learn through their own mistakes that yeah. like this isn't the ideal thing but you started really in this sort
0: of very sort of traditional way of making wine where simplicity, you didn't use chemicals the simplicity mm. i didn't study and although i had consultants and i certainly worked with them for many yeah. years because actually planting a commercial vineyard i mean of course i didn't know anything about that yes. or setting up a, a, a winery and I worked with them and I had a wonderful old oenologist who understood. And I said, I want to do the minimum. Mm. I don't want to use barrique. I don't want to plant Cabernet Sauvignon. I don't want to do this. And he said, OK, I've got it. So he, because he was real old school and he was, he was, he'd been in the area for a long time. So he knew about the older techniques mm. and he understood that. But the resistance was extraordinary to, to the idea of doing things like that. And each time I'd get a consultant over, they'd say, no, you need to do this pump and this thing and this, and blah, all this all this sort of micro-oxygenators and this and we should do that. And I was like, no, we don't need to do that because I knew that actually we didn't need to do it. Admittedly, I had to learn a lot about the harvesting and, and then also how you look after the vines and that took me at least twenty years
1: because you're build you're also building a relationship in understanding the land where you are That's right. and your grapes and how they work That's here right. in this environment yeah
0: and now I I'm, I'm working very much on the self reg, the self regulation of the vines so I I want to get the balance between the upper and the lower plant so that actually they don't overproduce you don't need to do any green pruning you hardly need to cut do any leaf which we don't do very much of anymore because I'm I'm beginning to get a wonderful balance Pinot Noir was obviously a big risk planting here but we understood pretty much that it it should should work but the fact that it's been so successful is a pleasant surprise.
1: What might be quite interesting for everybody to know about would be why you planted Pinot Noir in Tuscany because it's not heard of here and that's very
0: much due to where you are. Well Um, the, the valley that we're in has a very particular microclimate. Um, We're under one of the highest mountains in Tuscany, which is an Mm -hmm. ex-volcano. We're in a a valley that's very protected, so it's like a bowl shape. In fact, locally it's known as the golden bowl, Mm -hmm. la conca d'oro. We have water, we have mixed volcanic soil, so not many people in Tuscany have volcanic soil. No, I certainly hadn't heard about it until... I know, and you know what's really interesting (laughs) is perception is... Is all in the wine world. Mm. So I keep go when everyone's writing these big articles now about volcanic wine. I go, hello, I've got volcanic soil, <laughs> and they're like, you're not in Etna, you're not there, you can't possibly have a volcanic soil. You should, po- not... you should post them some of the ground. <laughs> yeah, but it's extraordinary, yeah. and I just go, hello, no, I do. I go, Malley, I've got Pinot Noir, I've got Grenache, I've got Sangiovese. It's very elegant. Because I don't fit into any any of the sort of bigger groups, so because I'm I'm out of the normal range, I'm not. Microclimate is so unique, um, and my soil is so unique here. So the really extraordinary thing about this valley is it is incredibly fertile, mm. and that's probably why the Etruscans were here 3,000 mm. years ago making wine. I can grow three varieties that normally don't coexist: Pinot mm. Grenache and Sangiovese, if anyone can know anywhere where those three vines grow successfully together, I'll give them a case of wine. So I, I challenge your listeners get ser, to find, yeah, get searching. find that. Um, I was pondering about the Golden Valley and how fertile it was, and we just happened to have a geologist staying here as a guest, because we also have a, 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 a castle bed and breakfast here, okay, yeah. which we call the Tuscan Faulty Towers. And <laughs> He was like, <laughs> "What are, really? would you like me to go and have a look?" I said, "Yes, please go and have a look at this, see what you think about it." Mm. So he came back and he said, "Okay, it's so obvious. so you've got marine sediment as, as the base, volcanic matter thrown on it, so you get a metamorphic marine clay, mm-hmm. which is a type of schist, Marley schist. Um, you get all your calcites, your limestones, you get all of that from the volcano um." He said, all of those have gone in layers. There's strata, Mm. which you can see um, on the edges of the valley. And he said, the secret to your valley is that the erosion is bringing all of those strata, mixing them, concentrating them, blending Mm. them, and they're ending up... In the base of the bowl. In the base of the bowl. Mm. And they're not going anywhere because it's shaped like a bowl. So it's like a crucible. With these great varieties as well, you have that potential a, just to express that. It's a that. funny intuition in some ways. I had tasted a lot of the wines that they make down the valley because I love those wines. They're young, fresh, mm. pure. Yeah. They last a year and then you've got the new wines. But they're really good, the prima materia, to understand if you can do something a little bit more sophisticated, mm. which is what I wanted to do. Mm. And I tasted them and they're all Sangioveses, but the top notes always reminded me of Pinot Noir then the then enologist that i was working with said i think you could do grenache here mm. so we're probably one of the only people that does alicante or or grenache mm. this far inside italy
1: I was wondering why you chose to call it alicante instead of Grenache because
0: that's the italian okay. name yep. for it but since many people don't know that i tend to say grenache alicante yes.
1: you've discovered a few things in this area as well a little bit oh, of history.
0: the Etruscan <laughs> wine-making stones. Some time ago, a friend of mine, we always used to go and help him pick his grapes and we'd have a big party down there. He had this stone that was carved out of the local volcanic rock. And I was like, what's that? And he said, oh, we, uh, it's a pesterole. And I said, what's that? People think it's where they used to crush the grapes with their feet to make the wine. And I was like, really? When? And he said, oh, I don't really know. I said, like, that looks really old. When did they do that? So I was talking about this and I was like, that's fascinating. And then someone told me there were some other ones down the valley. Uran, who's my main man, he has worked for me for 28 years now, was clearing down um, some, some pro- a property down under the castle who belonged to, some, belonged to a friend of ours. And he said, I've just found one of those stones. I said, uncover it. Let's have a look at it clear out the mud, clear out the earth. And there it was, this, this beautiful winemaking stone. There are obviously lots of them down the valley. So I then started asking more people. and out, I mean, now I know about eight or nine and that's people amazing. have told me that there are ma- many more down the valley and there are probably more to uncover. You should map them all out. Well, we are, that's what yeah. we're up to. Um, and of course, being the nutcase that I am, I was like, let's go down and make, make wine down there. <laughs> So pretty simple. There's an upper basin and a lower chamber with a little spout connecting them. You put the grapes in the upper chamber, squash them with your feet. Juice goes through the spout into the lower chamber where you gather um, the liquid. Now, exactly how they were used, I I don't know. But as a winemaker, I I can have a pretty good idea. Mm. Um, So from the practical use of it. Essentially, what we do is squash the grapes in the upper chamber, gather the liquid... And then put it into another container. Mm. Now, whether it was an amphora or it was terracotta is is probably what the Etruscans were doing. But um, I, I haven't gone down that road. I did do some experiments in it. I just put it in a good old fashioned small stainless steel vat and let it ferment. So I have learnt quite a few things from from doing that experiment, and I am hoping to to try to to possibly make a wine that I can put into the, into the co- co- commercial sector. Um In the future, um, because I have discovered that I can do that mm. using sulfites mm. uh, whether it, I c- it can travel, it certainly seems to last long i 'm hoping to develop those in the same way that that, that I developed my initial um, very simple experiences with mind making
1: because. These Etruscan wine stones. Well, we know from talking to you now that there are eight, nine, and there's probably
0: more to discover in this valley.
1: Are there any others in other parts of Tuscany so that you know? They, of? There
0: are. They are all over the volcanic backbone, running down all the way down to the south of Italy. Um, they're on the islands, the, the volcanic islands um, mm-hmm. in the Tyrrhenian Ter- Sea. Um, they're in Ischia. Um, They're in the Basilicata, um, they're in Calabria, they're in Sicily, they're in uh, some of the Etruscan sites in Tuscany, um, Lazio, Mm. they're in Sardinia. Someone sent me a photograph of one in Rioja. I've I've now seen photographs of, of the ones in Etna. Yeah, It looks
1: a little, It reminds me a little bit of the palmentos that they use in. Sicily. So the
0: palmenti is similar. That they're, yeah. they're also known as palmenti. Okay. So they're pesteroli here and they're palmenti, but the fact is, is that the ones that I've been looking at are the volcanic yeah. ones because obviously there would have been because they had volcanic soil. A lot of the conditions that I've been describing my microclimate mm. are around those volcanic areas, mm. so there probably was spontaneous growth of vitis vinifera which was then developed Mm. because of that. I've now, the most extraordinary thing, is that I've now also discovered they have them in Georgia. There's a much bigger story there. So obviously, I mean, I'm hoping you're going to go and write a book about them. So Yeah, that'd be brilliant. (laughs) Uh, And and what I think is you and I should go and make wine in all of them.
1: We should. (laughs) That would be so much fun. Yeah. The Winestone Project.
0: Because I think I'm Uh. I'm the only person who has actually in, you know, I, I think I first did it 14 years ago. Yes. I think I'm probably the only person who's actually made wine in one of those winemaking stands.
1: I worked for a mutual friend of ours, Sean, in Chianti and spent three and a half months in Tuscany and I'm always seeking out new Italian wines and I had not heard of anything close to this
0: until I came here.
1: <laughs> it was amazing for me to see it and you're,
0: I'm so, you've got a don't very lucky... I do think they have them in Chianti mm. because I I think... I I think that we're talking about something much earlier than the the development of winemaking in Chianti. Mm. Although, I I mean, I know there's very early winemaking in Chianti and it's quite possible that they were using terracotta and, you know. Wood didn't really get used until later Roman times, I I believe. Mm. Um, But I think these were the original winemaking areas. The coast, Mm. they were the volcanic soils. I think it was here and then it would have spread inland, probably more with the Romans.
1: What I find fascinating about that as well is when I think back to Etruscan times and I think about how I imagine wine to be and what it tasted like and how it was made. You know, it was quite a modern technology for that time to be able to get the juice separated from the skins as well, rather than if we look at Georgian winemaking in general. I know that they have something similar to these winestones, but in general all the grapes going in long maceration not being separated from the juice
0: well i for example when i make the wine down there i we squash the grapes Mm. get the juice extracted and then put both back together okay yeah and so we get the maceration but the juice separates quite quite easily then so but that was kind of what i decided to do as a winemaker down there so it was an intuitive choice Mm. about how i think they would have done it because i think that pretty much that would make sense to me as a winemaker um however it's not difficult to separate stuff i mean people are doing it for ages Mm. i mean just because we don't understand how to do it (laughs) you you wouldn't know how to do it doesn't Mm. mean that they didn't because they're separating stuff all the time you separate olive oil separate this separate that separate wheat from the chaff Mm. yeah they've been doing it by hand yeah they've People know how to separate stuff.
1: And what about for this area? What do you see? Obviously, what you're doing is quite unique and quite singular, actually, compared to what's going on
0: around here.
1: Is there anything in mind when you look forward or you're hopeful in a certain direction or something you're working towards?
0: I do think that this concept of small-scale farming is what we all need to return to. Mm. Um, I I live in a valley where there's small-scale farming all around me. There's been no modern farming in this valley. We still have birds, bees, flowers, fantastic uh, cherry trees, fruit trees, everywhere. There's everything you need to survive.
1: And a lot of wild animals
0: as well. So I've seen a few deers and boars. Oh, yeah, we've got all those. We've got snakes, we've got bats, really rare bats, we've got everything. Mm. And when you see that wonderful myriad of creation around you and you just realise how much has been destroyed by modern. It I mean it's sometimes I can hardly go and look at those fields. It makes me sad, and I see mm. those poor vineyards that are suffering in these unsustainable situations. There are no flowers, there are no birds, there's no insects. I I can't live there anymore. So the other day some friends and I were saying, Oh, you know, lots of people say to us that good wine comes from beautiful places and I was like well it's not like photo beauty except in the case
1: of potentino it's ridiculously stunning
0: (laughs) but I think what I'm talking about by it not being photo beauty is that I think that humans still find places where they know they can live well there's well-being for Mm. them beautiful so i find this beautiful because i know there's good air there's good water there's good there's plants you can see all around you you that you have good soil Mm. you know we still have that instinctively there's microlife there's yeasts there's bacteria everywhere we still instinctively i think it's probably quite primitive but we still instinctively go this is beautiful Mm-hmm. Because we know we can live well and survive here, and we feel good and you feel good mm. It well being
1: and on that note as we well, uh, 've talked a bit together about natural wines <laughs> and it 's quite a hot topic i 've really liked and enjoyed the way that you view that and I think when you try the potentino wines, one might assume that they 're sort of more conventionally made because they 're not cloudy they 're very, very they 're super super clean. Um, they express the grapes very very well and they're very classic in style so they're not when we think about the assumption of natural wine they don't tick all those boxes of having weird flavors aromas they it looks
0: unusual it's made with a grape variety you can't pronounce well people don't think I'm a natural wine at all Mm. and I always find that interesting And, and in fact when we started talking about this I said why do you think my wines are not considered natural because I fit into all of the categorization of a natural Mm. wine and you just said it's because they're classic they're well made Mm. they don't taste funky and I'm like well we don't they can be like that Mm. so yet again I, I think the wine world is so full of all these Constructed perceptions um, mm-hmm. and it, it always upsets me so um we we have been here at this event, the terroir event, mm-hmm. uh, which has been seven days of discussing all of these issues um, with, with groups of professional chefs with social entrepreneurs, with archaeologists all sorts a whole mm. range of people we've been discussing these very issues. what's really good fun is that nobody's had a hangover true actually. Nobody's had a hangover and my goodness. I'm just calculating <laughs> how much wine people have been drinking. And it's at least two bottles per person a day. Now I know that there's some people who have been drinking three bottles mm. and some that haven't had any mm. but nobody has has had a hangover. So then I'm like, well, wine doesn't make you feel sick. Mm. It doesn't give you a hangover. I use the famous if we use the Alice Faring guide to how, how much sulfites can go in a wine. I use between 80 and 100. Mm. So she said up to 120. Mm. I do 80 to 100. So I'm Mm. well within the limits. I don't put anything else in the wine. Yeah. Um, And everyone senses that because A, they're drinking enormous amounts of it Mm. and they're not sick as dogs because if you drank... As much wine as people are drinking here, of any other conventional or even some organic wines, they'd all be absolutely, would st- have stopped drinking by now, but they haven't. I think that's a really good sign because people are learning that wine isn't bad for you, it's good for you.
1: I certainly think so. <laughs> justifies justifies me being able to drink. Um, no, I really, what I really like about the wines is that I could bring this to a dinner And it wouldn't matter who the guests are. I could take this home to my family who are not wine drinkers at all. I could take this to my colleagues and we can all appreciate it as a great wine that's made well. And that's what I really like about the wines that you're making.
0: I don't believe that wines or experiences or anything should be exclusive. They taste so good. (laughs) Well. You've nearly finished your glass. I know. <laughs> I, due, I, I due have for, finished my glass because you're making me talk so much. I'll be due so for
1: another one soon. We,
0: we'll definitely need another one soon.
1: And how can everybody find you so online? So or?
0: we are online. You can buy from us. We're with Wood Winters, we're with From Vineyards Direct, and we're with the Wine Society. Okay. So we're super available.
1: And if everybody want if anybody wants to come here to stay and visit the castle,
0: potentino.com, book yourselves in, William. Thank you
1: very much, Charlotte. Thank
0: you, Emily. It's been a <laughs> pleasure meeting
1: you. <laughs> you
0: too.
1: Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>